You go up this spiral staircase, you cover the same ground over and over again. You just don't ever cover it at the same level. And what I'm finding is, is when I look back at my career, man, I didn't do it all right. But I learned from my lessons and I learned from great mentors and I'd have to cover the same ground over again. Hello, my friend, and welcome to this Wednesday episode of A Call to Leadership. We in business struggle, we suffer, we have challenges to overcome. Sometimes those challenges are question marks on whether or not we should even be in business. Sometimes it is, how do we find others who will help us navigate this crazy world called entrepreneurship? Well, I've invited an expert in this area, Wayne Kroll, who is a dear friend, longtime confidant, veteran in the space of entrepreneurial leadership. Man, he has done it all. And he has blessed us with his time. And he's going to give us nuggets of wisdom that are priceless based on decades of experience in coaching, consulting, leading his own businesses. And he is going to bring it. I can't wait for you to listen in. I'm Dr. Nate Sala, and this is a call. To leadership. Wayne, so good to have you on the show today. Hey, thank you. Thank you for letting me come. Yeah, man. You know, we've known each other for a number of years now, and every time we meet, we have just the most amazing conversations, and it was time to share it with more people. Uh, yeah. So you have a very interesting background. We were just laughing about it before the program started. Varied, many different hats that you've worn in the past. And I think we'll talk more and more, maybe even in a series on different aspects of your leadership and your consulting and your coaching. But right now, statistics show that there are more people entering the entrepreneurial space this post-pandemic than we have recorded in our near history. And I've seen more and more people that have come to me, of course, in my accounting and advisory practice to get themselves set up with an LLC or a corp or whatnot. And you know, when people come in and you've worked with many startups and people, different companies that have also been on the backside of it, like help, right? Drowning. And when people first start, they generally are super passionate, super excited about it. Sometimes it's like when uh, you're watching a program, whether it's America's Got Talent or any of those shows, and you see the host say after they've done their audition, who told you that you can sing, right? Because yeah. maybe somebody convinced them that they had a great business idea and maybe it wasn't so great. Do you ever experience that? Are you seeing that? Have you seen that? Have you seen where people will think they have a great idea and then it's really not a great idea? What are some reasons that you think people don't see that maybe this isn't going to go where I want it to go. You know, I have seen it, and it's sad, you know, because I like to be an encourager. And look at some of the situations where I have um, shut people down, more or less. It's sad to me because I feel like I've taken a dream away from them. But they miss some really valid, what I consider truths, in order to be in a, so starting a business. And one of those truths is, my idea really going to help other people or is it just my idea and when i see that one a lot i think that's where people misplace a evaluation for passion so they have a great passion about this 
and I'm thinking about a, a gentleman that he wanted me to help him start this art business. You know, like, okay, well, what I know about art? Nothing. And But I do know about the business and stuff. And so he had this idea, and this was going to be the next you know, this was going to be wonderful and it's going to help people and everything. But <laughs> here's the bottom line. Some people don't like to draw. You know, I mean, they just don't like that. It's a hobby, you know, and what he did is he tried to take a hobby and turn it into a business. And so some of the necessary things, he had a great passion for art, a great passion for art history. He knows more about Van Gogh than anybody needs to know. But it doesn't translate into a business. Right. You know, it's yeah. valuable, but it doesn't translate. You know, it's funny you say that because I've had similar conversations with people. And this isn't necessarily an episode on, you know, why you should go crawl in a hole and die. No, it's really the realities of how to create an opportunity for others and how to solve their problems, right, in business. And when I think about it, I've distilled business success. People ask me, how do I be successful in business? And of course, you know, we even approach that with trepidation as people that do counseling, coaching, consulting in this area, because it's not easy. In fact, we all know that most businesses fail in their first five years and 10 years and so on, and a lot of different reasons, but money and management are two primary reasons why businesses fail. But there are other pieces to that. And when you say, well, what do you mean by money and management? And the management piece actually can start way in the beginning in terms of how am I managing my expectations of what this business might oh, be yeah. like, right? So when I say distilling in five words or less, this is what I would say. If you want to be successful in business, solve relevant problems with excellence. So you're talking about being a problem solver, right? But not only any problem, relevant problems. They have to be important to your end user and you have to approach it, I think, with excellence. Because if you approach it mediocre, you're going to get mediocre results. Slipshod, you're going to get slipshod results. Plus, if it's relevant, it's not only going to be relevant for you, it's also going to be relevant to your colleagues or competitors, right? And if you come at it with a less than excellence approach, somebody else will approach it with excellence. And at the end of the day, people will want to work with people who provide the best possible experience. So when I say that to people, They'll start to think, okay, what kind of problems am I solving? Because oftentimes when people start a business, I think they're trying to solve a problem for themselves. Yeah. One of the things I've gotten more and more when I'm talking to folks, because they'll ask me, hey, can you help me start this? And my answer is, well, you know, let, let's talk about it. And the first thing I want to talk about is what do you want your life to be? And if they can't define that, then I don't think I have much of a chance of success with them, you know, because one is in our area here in St. Louis, you can live a moderate middle class income lifestyle on about $60,000 a year. You know, you're not going to have a lot left over, but you're going to be fine and you'll have cable. So that must be all the basics. You know, well, that's not a lot of money. But in some people's mind, they're thinking about wealth and living on a yacht in Fort Lauderdale, And when in reality, all they want to do is control their time. Yes. Well, you can do that if you can generate $60,000. If that's the life that you want, so getting down to that core element of what you really want your life to look like, what's the real purpose for your life, and how do you balance relationships in that? 
I've seen it so many times. People, here's my business plan. I'm going to work like a dog till I'm 50. And that I'm going to neglect my family. And then I'm going to retire when I'm 50. And I'm just going to spend time with my family. And my response to that is that really not a good business plan because you run the risk of being divorced and your kid's not talking to you. Is that really the life that you want? You know, so, and is there a different way of doing it? And sometimes that's scaling things down and getting off of the artificial timelines that we have for ourselves. So that's huge. Yeah. I think about this world we live in to where we think, oh, well, I need this amount of money in the bank, or I need this yacht, or I need this TV, or whatever the material possessions are because that's what somebody else has and that's my interpretation of what success looks like or arriving or achieving and you're 100 percent right because same thing when people come into my office and say well nate you know here's what i want to accomplish and i'll say well why do you want to accomplish that what kind of life do you want to live what kind of life do you want to have and some might say well i want to have 50 million dollars in the bank by the time i'm 65 years old that's a goal for them And then I say, well, here are all the steps you have to complete in order for that generally to manifest itself. Is that what you want to do? Well, no, I just want to work about five hours a day. Okay, well, when do you want to work five hours a day? Well, just to start all the way through. Well, that's not a realistic expectation based on what you say your needs are. And what do those needs accomplish for you? What is it ultimately the goal? Because as you've seen and I've seen, having more dollars in your bank account doesn't always equate to fulfillment. It doesn't always equate to joy and peace in your life. And that can be a goal that ultimately will waste your life. Not necessarily, it's not necessarily the case, but I remember when my son was little and he would always say, dad, you need to expand your business. You need to expand your business. You need to expand your, you need to go nationwide. And I said, well, why? He said, well, you know, so that you can have a nationwide name. Like, well, why? (laughs) Yeah. It's not, I'm not interested. You know what I'm interested in doing? I'm interested in being able to come home at three o'clock in the afternoon and spend time with you. Yeah. And if I reinvest my time into that, that's where my time will take me. Now, granted, that might be okay for some people, but I had to weigh out the kind of life I wanted to have and then create that because we can get lost in all the smoke and mirrors of what we think a fulfilled life might look like. Yeah. I have a friend that has taken this and I'm not as disciplined as he is to have actually accomplished this. So I have to a degree now at this stage in life. So he wrote down all the things that were important to him. And so one of the things that was important to him was having breakfast with his children every morning. That was important to him. So his kids get up and he has breakfast with them and he spends a little time with them and then he takes them to school. And then he got the thing about what else is important. Well, exercise is important to him. So he figured, okay, I need about an hour and a half to do my gym routine. So he put that on his calendar. Well, what else is important to him? Well, my wife is important. So, okay, so I'll need to put about an hour a day where she gets my undivided attention and then there's date night. And so he lists all these things out. And then he went back and said, okay, with the time that I have left over, I have to work and I need to generate this amount of money. So he just divided and say, okay, well then, you know, I have so many hours in a day to generate this amount of money. So I have to have business plans that generate that kind of cash. And I'll be darned. He hasn't, he's pulled that off. And it's amazing. And you cannot get him before nine o'clock in the morning. And he just says, well, no, thank you. And if he does an away trip kind of thing, his family goes with him. 
I mean, that's just a given with him. So yeah, he'll come and speak at your meeting, but you need to accommodate for his children because they're coming with him. But he has the life he actually wants, but he also has the life he actually built. And it wasn't without problems. I mean, he didn't immediately reach his financial goals, but he kept adjusting and getting better. And I think because of that integrity that he had, he became more attractive to people. And then suddenly he has this following because everybody said, I mean, I would love to be like him, you know, but I'm not willing to pay the price to be like him. But the way he's done that, I have a client down in Texas who's done almost exactly the same thing. He runs a construction company. Well, very busy time for him is in the morning when he's getting all of his crews going. But he also has three young girls, you know, and so he just adjusted his life and hired an operations guy to get the crews going, and then he checks on them later in the day. You know, but the reason he does that is so that he can spend his morning with his girls when it's important because he doesn't want them to be 21 and not know their daddy. Oh, you know, wow. so. No, that's powerful. And it's achievable. Yeah, it is. And it's achievable if you're intentional about it. Yeah. You know, and if you lay out the discipline and you got to lay out your ego, but the business plan that you use has actually got to be valid. And so there's a verification process that you have to go through. And as you well know, you can't be so financially oriented that you're not people oriented because, you know, now there's clients and clients require time and nurture. And if your clients aren't your friends, then you're not going to have a well-balanced life. So, yeah, it's, The more I think about what you're saying, it just reminds me of the importance of the planning process. And a lot of business owners are uh, ready, fire, aim. Instead of ready, aim, fire, they don't spend a whole lot of time in the planning process. I didn't when I first got started. When I first got, but I started young. I started when I was 21 and I bought a business and I had some help from family, but I was just solo and I was just learning on my own. And it took me a long time to figure it out. Probably took me a good decade before I finally got my head on straight and really began to understand this idea of planning and creating boundaries that are necessary and owning those boundaries, like you said, the integrity piece, and then people being attracted to that integrity. And I think that that adds a value proposition for us because when people see that you are committed to meeting those expectations. Again, like you said, whether it's spending time with the family, when I'm away, I am away. And even my own cousin who is a fellow entrepreneur, he's like, man, Nate, when you're off, you're off. So it's almost like I had to call the president to get a hold of you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but there's really nothing wrong with it. I mean, I don't know why we don't all live like that. It's easy to say, well, you know, I'm really doing this for my family it's harder to actually do it for your family without asking them to make a sacrifice. So once I got offered a very lucrative job in another city, man alive, it was like, dang, I can't believe they want me. You know, like, gee, I might be as good as I think I am. You know, I mean, it was just an interesting process that I went through, and I was already spending the large salary that they were offering. And I still had my daughter at home. And I realized that, I was about to change her life. And when I really got to thinking about it, like, okay, I can make this amount of money, and oh, yeah, 
I can miss this portion of my daughter's life. Is that money worth it? And I think I made the right decision. I turned the job down. And the end result is, is my daughter talks to me. You know, that's my greatest success. All three of my kids talk to me. All three of my kids are financially independent, socially responsible, and they talk to me. And here's the really, because everybody who's in the seniors citizens will understand this. When we go out to dinner, my children buy. Now, don't know what I did right, nice. but my children buy. But there's not enough money that I could have ever made that would replace the friendships that I have with my two sons and my daughter. Yeah. You know, and that came from making decisions based off of what what I was about to do and how that would impact them. Yeah. So, and the level of commitment to not compromise that. Yeah. Is an important part of this decision making because as we're speaking, there's someone who's listening who's really driven and who's putting in the time because they want to make a provision for their family. And so there are noble reasons for that. Yet at the same time, and that's important, and if it's for a season, whatnot, but at what cost for a duration, right? For example, I come from a Mediterranean family, and most of the immigrant family members, the men, open stores, whether it's a grocery store or some kind of a convenience store or whatnot. And they would go work in the store from seven in the morning to about eight or nine at night over a course of 20, 30 years. And I watched, you know, this progression when I was just a kid and thinking, and I don't want to do that. I want to spend time with my family. I want them to know me and for us to cultivate relationships. And I will sacrifice whatever it is is necessary from a personal gain, if you will, to do that. And one thing that solidified that for me, Wayne, was when I was watching a documentary on the Marriott family and JW Marriott was sort of this you know empire builder and i remember he had already passed but one of his sons i'm not sure how many sons he had but his son was on the program talking about his dad and how dad was all over the world and building these cool hotels the son was probably in his 50s or 60s and i remember him saying but you know he was never around you can see that sting still hurt that he didn't have that relationship. It hit me, and I was young when I, I didn't have any a family at the time, but I was like, wow, and that I don't want to be that guy. Yeah, I think there was a period, if I'm totally transparent and honest with you, there was a period of time where I did neglect my family. And I found myself in Ohio doing a consult and wasn't necessarily having a good experience in Ohio, but I remember the morning that I woke up and I realized that it was my oldest son's third birthday. And the question that really stuck in my head is, why am I in Ohio? He's not going to have another third birthday. Yes, the party was delayed. He had no idea. But that changed my life. That changed the way I scheduled things. That changed the way I uh, addressed my role as a parent. You know, and where I would actually look at my family's calendar before I would accept appointments. And at that time in my life, I was a hot commodity on the speaking circuit and I would always check, you know, I would love to come speak, but my son has a baseball game that day. I would love to be at your event, but that's a tennis match for my daughter. Now I would. Being really honest, I would give up the piano recitals. Yeah, I just yeah, did, didn't have a lot of trouble giving up the piano recitals. But the tennis matches and the sporting events, hardly ever. And most of their lives 
I attended all of their events, and when they talk about growing up, that is one of the things that they talk about. It's huge. Yeah, yeah, it really is. So the flip side of that is someone listening saying, well, well, how did you manage losing, I'm using air quotes, that business? Because if they're struggling or if they're trying to make money in the early stage of their business, do you sacrifice the recital, the baseball game? so that you can build the business. I can't quote the verse, but there's a verse in Scripture that says that if your ox is in the ditch on the Sabbath, you can get the ox out. The tail end of that is is that if your ox is in the ditch every Sabbath, you actually need a new ox. And so, yeah, to say I didn't miss certain events, I just, I mean, I couldn't say that. I mean, because I, I did. The norm was I was there. You know, and if something was beginning to drain, drain it out of me and cause me to miss more, then I made a values decisions about what I was going to do. Yeah. And uh, I did choose at one time to leave my family here and move to another city. And it was a slow decision and it had to do with personal mission and why I chose to do that and the need that I was, I mean, I really had bought into the need and the mission of the organization that they were asking me to come into. And it was also for a defined amount of time. But my children were older. My sons were already out of the home. My daughter was in the process of leaving the home. I had a weekend marriage, you know, so I would leave there on Friday afternoons, come home, leave again on Monday afternoons and go back This is going to last for this amount of time. So, yeah, I have done that, but it has never been a pattern for me. You know, so part of my professional life has always been in the child welfare world. And there are marvelous, marvelous men and women who have led organizations and they have done great things for children in need, but they did it at the expense of their own children. I just saw that so many times where their children were just as broken because of the absence of their parent. And I just not going to be that guy. Yeah. You know, I mean, it was just a conscious decision and wasn't always an easy decision. And particularly, I can think of a couple episodes with my board. It was not a popular decision, but like, okay, this is who I am and this is who I'm going to be. And if you, don't like that and want something different, then let's just talk about my severance, you know, because I'm not going down the path that you want me to go. So, Interesting. Do you think that people recognize that in the moment in their career, during their passionate, they're working hard, they're making a difference? I think it's like a spiral staircase. I mean, realize they can't see my hand turning here. So you want to get there, and you're not going to get there perfectly. So you start going up this spiral staircase. It's not a lateral staircase where you can say, I'm on step one, step two, step three, step four. It's as you go up this spiral staircase, you cover the same ground over and over again. You just don't ever cover it at the same level. And what I'm finding is, is that when I look back at my career, man, I didn't do it all right. But I learned from my lessons, and I learned from great mentors, and I'd have to cover the same ground over again, but I never covered it at the same level until now that I'm much farther along in life, and I'm feeling a little more secure, but I'm still learning how to do this because I'm still married, 
and I still adore my wife. And at this stage of our lives, marriage is different than it was when we were 30. So I still have to put a lot of my emotional energy into the marriage, and I parent my children still, but I don't manage their lives. They're more like my friends, so they need me differently now than they did when they were, say, in elementary school, but they still need their dad. You know, they don't always need his consult, though I would always be willing to give it to them, <laughs> you know, but... No, but they still need that. So I'm going up that sprawl staircase, and I'm covering the same issues, but I'm not covering them at the same level. I think people have to give themselves a measure of grace in that. You're not going to always get it right. But the beautiful thing, particularly about family and children, is they are very forgiving, you know, and not likely to be too scarred by it, you know. Well, you take me as the kind of guy who has conversations with his family, and I think that's an important aspect of this journey. And for me, I have a very busy time of the year. It's tax season every year, and we have conversations around it, and we talk about how difficult it is for all of us. My wife runs the house, and it's tough for me not to be there. And, of course, I'm tired, and it's a difficult time, and it's for a season. And will we constantly talk about what life will look like when the season is over so that we can rejoice in reuniting and reconnecting after this commitment that we make as a family together. And I've begun to rephrase probably about four or five years ago, maybe longer, even this time of year, this season, I call it a harvest season now. So as if we're farmers and it's harvest time for the crop. And so I've never heard of a farmer complain about a good harvest, right? The farmer works during harvest season, but the farmer also rests after harvest season. And that's the time for me and my family to reconnect, reunite, but we have to have conversations around it. I mean, do you find yourself having conversations around these difficult times of your life? Yes. Yeah, we do. I call them our logistic conversation. So I share my office with my washer and dryer. So I have a home office. I share it with my washer and dryer. I don't have a view, you know, other than the washer. But the good news is our washer makes music, so I don't have to have the radio on. And so particularly during the time when so many meetings were Zoom meetings, so our natural routine is Marianne would get up, and that's my wife, and she would get up, and she'd want to do her chores, which included washing the clothes. And I would have a Zoom meeting. And so we had to have this conversation about timing and how that's going to work, which started out being more than about timing. It had to do with purpose. And it opened up conversations for me to have with her about what I was envisioning about this and what role she would play in this. Because one of the rules I have is I don't want to, at this stage of our marriage, we've been married since 1974, and most of them have been great years, and I don't want to go off and leave her. you know. But she's not necessarily a person who likes to travel. So we had to have a conversation about, okay, well, where would you be willing to travel And so we had that, okay, and then I said, okay, well, then I will only seek clients in those areas because you're willing to travel here and you're willing to travel there. That's where I'll seek my clients. I won't market in Wisconsin. You don't want to go to Wisconsin, so I won't market in Wisconsin. The other thing is is that, I've, and there is a point here where at my stage of life, I do have the freedom to do this. I'm very selective about my clients. So my litmus test for clients is this. If I'd be willing to go on vacation with you, I'll take you as a client. 
All right, so that makes my visits to clients more like visiting with friends, which is easy to include her in that visit. And yes, we do have to break away and look at spreadsheets and talk some stuff sometimes, but the visits are much more natural. But that was a conversation with her to include that. Now, she has no interest in the business at all. She literally just checks her account to make sure the money transferred over. She can't necessarily tell you. She can tell you generally about what I do, but as far as any details, and sometimes I'll get excited about something and I'll say, hey, I know you're not necessarily interested, but let me just tell you what I just read, you know, and so I'll just tell her all about it and she'll just kind of sit there and listen and nod. But it's a process that we've developed in our marriage, covers the logistics of life, And then, you know, it's managing the calendar, you know, because we're old, so we have doctor's appointments. So I can't necessarily go see a client at this time because maybe she has a doctor's appointment. But, yeah, you have to have that basic kind of communication. But the real important communication is more of the heart-to-heart kind of conversation where I talk about with her sometimes – the sadness I feel because of some of the decisions that my clients have made, not because it impacted me directly, but because it maybe impacted their relationships. And so there's no place for me to vent that except with her. And in a way that kind of draws her in, in a non-judgmental way. And we're able to have that. And I get a necessarily outlet that I need because sometimes she'll say, well, when you ran into that before, you know, this is what you did. I go, you know what? I forgot about that. That's how I handled that. And so it's got to be this overlapping, but it's all communication. It's all being attentive. And then it's being attentive in the sense of sometimes she has things on her mind. So just because I'm out in my luxury office doesn't mean that she has to stop what she's doing you know, in order to pay attention to whatever I came up with while I was sitting out next to the washing machine. Yeah. There has to be some sensitivity to timing and, you know, and so we have dinner together, but we don't usually talk in dinner. We usually watch the news. And we've talked about, hey, do you think we should like turn off the TV and talk? And we said, well, no, let's watch the news. I mean, and we can talk another time. No, you know, that's, so. that's beautiful. I liked how you even phrased the, managing your calendar i think a lot of people probably feel like the calendar is managing them yeah it's easy to get that way mm-hmm. yeah it yeah. is it doesn't have to be that way because i mean in our society i know a lot of people like myself we leave ourselves very little margin because we want to continue to maybe help maybe it's in a desire to help maybe there's a lot of different reasons we do that but i think that the calendar is a tool that we can utilize to ultimately work as a team i love the way you put it that having these conversations around the team aspect of hey where would you like to go what would you like to do and then build a life around mutual vision yeah really it becomes that and i think as you're building it out the clients that you serve are so understanding so here's something that happened this week my wife requires a medical attention and those are periodic I failed to put one of those appointments on my calendar. So a client said, hey, I I need you for a half day. 
Yeah, so I mean, I put it in. That's not a problem. And so Marianne was looking at her calendar. She said, hey, now, do you have this appointment on your calendar? I go, oh, let me look. Well, there's the appointment with a client, and now she's telling me that she has this medical treatment. So, you know, I did the normal thing, like, well, should I get somebody else? And she was honest enough with me to say, no, I really like it when you take me to those. So I thought, okay. So I sent a text to the client, and I said, hey, I failed to see her appointment, and so I cannot be with you for that half day unless you start it very early in the morning or if you're willing to start it about 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And I was just really astounded at how gracious they were to respond. And I think it's because they know her, so she's not some abstract, you know, because like she's been around and she's met them and the way she and I both interact with them and stuff. And so it was sort of like friends saying, oh, well, you can't come over for dinner on Thursday night. Well, how about Friday night? Right. Yeah. So they were easy to accommodate the schedule. And that goes back to your original if you will, rules for rules for business and taking on clients who you would enjoy going on a vacation with, because those are probably the kind of people who also will give you the grace when you need the grace as well. And they understand. In fact, that's, it's also part of this whole idea behind an ideal client avatar or ideal client model. I would encourage anyone either starting a business or currently in business to explore, you know, what an ideal client would look like and yes. if that's who you're yeah. serving because you're probably losing some sleep and some energy and even some productivity and some positive outcomes for the ones who are your ideal client. Yeah, and knowing who your client is is not always a simple process. So at one time, I ran a educational institution and my clients and the problems that they had were multi-level. So I had a regulatory client. I had to satisfy the regulatory folks and the accreditation people. I had a governance. I had a board issues. I had labor issues with the teachers. And then I had parents. And all of them were clients. All of them were are stakeholders, whatever you want to call them. All of them had to be satisfied and all had competing needs. So it's not necessarily a simple process, but it's not an undoable process. And if you can get some clarity of thought of this is the life that I'm building for myself, then you can start shaving off activities and attitudes and stuff and asking really tough questions like, okay, well, I'm going to add this new product. Why am I doing that? You know, well, because I saw one of my competitors, they were going to do that. Well, okay, well, do you have the workforce that can do that in an excellent manner? No, I can hire the workforce. Well, maybe not. Not in this climate. Maybe you can't. I mean, that's not like qualified technicians are just sitting on a stump waiting for you to call them. Right. You know, so it's the complexity of it, but it begins with clarity. It really does. Clarity is power and clarity of vision. I mean, that's the foundation is what's the vision for my life, right? Let's build it. And so the way I look at it is I have create three non-negotiables. One is the vision for my future, what it might look like, and then the mission in order to reach that. And of course, the values that I ascribe to. So the vision, the mission, the values all create, if you will, an internal kind of a culture, whether it's a big company, a little company, just an individual or a family. 
And then, as you had just stated, your litmus test for whether or not you make a decision, the positive or negative, does it continue me on that trajectory to meet all of those pieces? Does it fit within my value system? Is it yes or no toward the mission and then ultimately achieving the vision? And if the answer is no, then you can easily say, well, that doesn't fit within our direction. Otherwise, it'll pull you away. And then, like you said, I love the way you put even understanding and always understand your context. You know, what is the climate like? Climates or contexts are constantly changing. And as leaders, we have to keep our eyes open to everything that's happening around us to help us to make those kind of decisions on a daily basis. I mean, it's essential. And I think we tend to do is compromise that. We'll compromise and say, well, you know, maybe I'll just do this one time. But that goes back to your comment about integrity, because having integrity is being undivided. And maybe some other episodes you'll have heard this. It's we share that the word integer with integrity, which is a it's a whole number. You can't divide it. Right. So when you're whole, that means a no is a no. You have to stick by the no. Yeah, it's tough to do. Yeah, it it is it is tough to do, but it is it is so doable and it's liberating. Yeah, it actually it is very very liberating, you know. So, I remember the first time I fired a large client, you know. I mean, so it was a meeting with all my C-level people and you know, and I'm and I'm listening to them all the complaints. Okay, they're slow pay. They wanted a discounted rate. They didn't like our services and they meant, and they managed to call us every day. So there was a morale, you know, my staff didn't really like working with them. And so I just said, well, okay, well, let's just fire them. And so, you know, everybody said, but, you know, at that time for one of my units, they were about 25% of the revenue. So, you know, the CFO rightfully so said, well, how will we make up the revenue? And I said, my response was, I said, well, we're going to be in such a, a much better mood that we won't have any trouble getting new clients because they're going to like working with us because we're not going to be grumpy. And that didn't really satisfy her. I mean, rightfully so. Uh, but at, as I went through that process, I thought, no, this is one of the values I say I hold is I value my staff and I protect my staff. I'm their leader and my staff is getting abused. So it really doesn't matter what the financial cost is. I am not going to allow my staff to be abused. And I went down to the leader of the uh, organization of the customer and, you know, was really nice about it. And I said, look, I'm, you know, here's my complaint. Your staff abuses my staff and I don't like it. So I want you to know that you have 30 days. I'm firing you. (laughs) (laughs) How'd that go? Yeah, it went really. He was rather shocked. Yeah. You know, so they asked for an extension and I denied it. No, I want you out of here. No, no, I'm not, you can't talk to my staff that way. You know, if they did something wrong, then there's we have a grievance process. But just to come in and verbally abuse them, and what happened is, is it changed. Well, one is I don't think the staff believed I would do it, but it changed the way they saw me as their leader because now I was their leader, their advocate. Yeah. So as a leader, I will help you to be secure in this environment to do your best possible work and you exchange obedience as a follower to follow you on this journey. And when you had talked about your party responsibility as leaders to protect them, that fits into this model of some aspect of essentialities of leadership. So followers are looking for security and leaders are looking for, I mean, the word obedience, we can exchange it for 
you know, just uh, getting the work done and, and really influence at the end of the day. And I think we tend to underestimate that people are still daily watching us as leaders to see or whether or not. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So from where I ate my lunch at work was um, across the grounds and my office set over here. So sometimes I get to thinking about stuff. And so I would just thinking and I wouldn't be mad. I just would be thinking, well, sometimes my facial expression makes it look really intense. And I just walk out of my office and walk over to get something to eat. And before I could get back, the rumor was, is Wayne's really mad about something. My staff, which were mostly behaviorists, said, well, you know, you need to watch your facial expressions, you know. But yeah, you just dealing with them and valuing them there there's an element to that to leadership so i I value my family but also and value my employees and i value my customer but it's all them having the right right role but with some clear expectations which i like the way you said that is that you know these things come together there's a trade-off so when I first got the first job as the CEO, like I was really proud. You know, like, oh, I'm a CEO, you know, <laughs> I must have made it. And then the second day I go, I don't think I know what a CEO does. You know, so <laughs> I'm thinking, huh. So I called my mentor, a business mentor, and told him, hey, I got this. He said, yeah, I heard that. Congratulations. I said, hey, can you come out here? And he said, yeah, yeah. I said, yeah, I just need to talk to you. So I sat down with him in the conference room. This is my second day of employment. And I said, I got just like one question. He said, well, what's that? I said, hey, what does a CEO do? (laughs) You know, I said, I've got all these visions. He said, oh, it's really simple. He said, you go around and you find out, does all your staff know what's expected of them? Do all of them have the tools to do it? And are they doing it? He said, that's all you do. That's your only job. To address the barriers that have come up for them doing their jobs. I go, well, shoot, I can do that. And that's always been my whole philosophy as far as leading teams is, you know, I'm not a technician. I'm not a behaviorist. I'm not a physician. All of I've led, but okay, well, do you know what's expected of you? And do you got the tools to do it? And are you doing it? And that's so empowering for the people that you lead because it raises their position, but it also raises my position. In that time, I became more of their advocate. And sometimes my advocacy was accountability because I advocate for all the staff, and if somebody's not carrying their weight, then you have to advocate for the staff that's paying a price for a staff member not carrying their weight. But it's still an advocacy role, which for me is a very comfortable role to be in and a very – not sure if I know the right English word, is not just comfort, it's fulfilling because I'm just helping my staff do a better job, which they all wanted to do. Yeah, reminds me of this, just a servant leader's mentality for leadership, right? Not authoritarian, but providing what the tools they need to do the best possible work they can do in an environment that is built to serve one another and fulfill our vision, our mission, right? And adhere to our values. Funny, my son and I were just talking about this the other day. And he said, Dad, I don't think I want to be a technician. You do technical work, but you also do leadership. Of course, you go back and forth. He said, I don't think I want to do technical work. I want to be a CEO. So, oh, okay. And he said, I just don't want to work as hard as you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. I said, okay, well, how much do you think the average CEO works? 
He said, I don't know. I said, I think it's like 60 to 80 hours last time I checked. And he said, no, that can't be true, Dan. I said, well, let's just check. So it turns out it's, it's about 62 hours. And that's the average. So some certainly work more or less. And I said, you know, this guy, Elon Musk, you've heard all about. I think he's at about 100. I don't even know how he does it. But that's a lot of time. And most of his time is, he says, is putting out fires, is helping people, removing roadblocks and obstacles so people can do their best possible work. And then he says, well, maybe I don't want to be a CEO. <laughs> maybe I want to do something else. But I think that we can learn a lot from the way you've described how not only the CEO functions, but even the technicians. We're all solving problems. We are just in a different role of solving problems and illuminating opportunities. And now you worked at the foster care. Yeah, and behavioral, behavioral, the children's behavioral health. Yeah, behavioral health for a number of years. Yeah. Yeah, and that's really still where my passion is, though I um, am really hesitant to get involved in anything, though there was one issue that came up this legislative session that I just, okay, I've just had enough of this. And so I caught myself throwing my, my hat back in the loop again to address that. But no, yeah, I love that population and such it was so rewarding. I wonder, I mean, we've got a lot of kids in the foster care system and our families have been involved in that as well. And, you know, I wonder how much we can impact this society, if you will, you know, just taking it to another level, our conversation and helping those in our midst to see a better vision. And I say that because we've interacted with the foster care system, as I'd mentioned, and just having conversations with kids who have been through a lot of trauma and not only that but you know the trauma doesn't just stop when you're a kid right we trauma carries on and i wonder you know what you'd have to say about how we can you know be a part of that conversation to help this next generation if you will to have a vision that's beyond the trauma well you know i've spent a lot of time thinking about it but just thinking of of a simple way to kind of answer your question. So I was entitled to know everything about all the children that I served. And I declined that. So in the meetings where we were discussing the backgrounds on children's cases and stuff, I dismissed myself, not because I wasn't interested in the kids. I always wanted to see the children as children, not as trauma victims. So with me, they could just be a kid. And part of what I think happens is we unintentionally, we begin to label people by their brokenness rather than by their strengths. And somehow or another, we have to change the conversations, you know, because a child who's been removed from their family because of neglect certainly has been through trauma. But so has a child who stayed in their home of origin and both parents neglected them by just ignoring them. You know, even though they were never removed, never came into the system, they have that same gap. You know, do you label that one as traumatized? And so now we have to, uh, no, you don't. You just say, okay, well, we've all had stuff we had to overcome. And the way I would say it in my faith context is that which Satan meant to destroy you, God will use for good. You know, so the household of origin for me was not a perfect household, 
but it's the household I got. You know, so you just, you can look at it and say, well, you know, they weren't this or they weren't that or I had to deal with this. Okay, and all that would be true, you know. Or you can just look at it and say, okay, this is the household I got. This is the context of how I understand the world. Now, how do I move forward? And I'd love to see us have start having conversations for the strength of this population rather than for the pain of the population. Now, there is another side of this. This is particularly used in my work with the veteran community where you hear many veterans saying, don't waste your pain, you know, because pain is one is pain. But what I find is, is like people who've been through pain generally are much more empathetic. They're less judgmental. You know, there's a lot of characteristics that you look at them. You kind of go, man, I wish I could be like that. But would I really want to go through the pain to get where they went through? So, you you know, you just let them be kids. Yeah. Everybody has some con in its context. And I don't want to chase this rabbit too far. But I have a dear friend who during the I'm a Vietnam War veteran during the Vietnam War. He had a college deferment and we are dear friends. So he's telling me this story. And the story is, is how he would come home on weekends and his dad would make him mow the lawn. And so he's talking about it and he's talking about how he wanted to sleep late, but his dad made him get up at eight and mow the lawn. And I'm listening to the story and I'm thinking, okay, yeah, yeah. And he is truly traumatized by this. And I said, well, can I point out one thing for you? And he says, well, what's that? I said, well, you're mowing the lawn on, by the way, a riding lawnmower. I'm in Vietnam in the jungles. Now, contextually, probably both of them were as traumatic because they're much deeper than that. But they don't equate. Nobody. He would never say, well, my suffering was the same as Wayne's suffering. But contextually, it is. And so we all have some kind of pain, and it's all based off of the context. So let's just learn to live with our pain and just keep moving forward. And so that's my dream for the foster. Somehow or we can take the label away. There was times like when kids would say to me, particularly if their parental rights had been terminated, hey, Mr. Cook, can, can you get me a last name? Those were painful conversations. You know, just really, I mean, the way they long for that family, there was particularly one young lady in a rural part of the state. She had busted more than a dozen foster homes. She'd gotten in all kinds of trouble, but she's about to graduate from high school, and she has no family. She wanted a family. She really wanted the family. So the state of Missouri decided to try to make this something special. So we put together this little marketing campaign. She was in the rural part of the state. So we used the Learfield's farm network and we advertised that she wanted a family. And that morning we got a telephone call from what eventually became her adoptive family. But her big concern was she didn't want anything from the family. She just wanted to be able to tell the people in college that she had one. You know, and these people went, the guy was really funny. He goes, well, he said, if we're going to do this, he said, I'm, we're going to do it all the way. He said, so I'm going to, I want you to know, I'm going to have input into who you date and I'm going to want to know that you're doing well in school and you're going to have to come home regularly, you know, and it was like music to her ears. 
that kind of care and yeah. nurture because they long for that. Yeah, you know, we, we all long for that. But I just that labeling of the kids, victimizing them. I just I wish I could change that narrative. I haven't been able to do it at this point. Well, you are uh, certainly the perfect advocate to continue the charge in this conversation i'm well, sure will you. reach years yeah you'd said something that really resonated with me a number of things but one was you talked about progress you didn't say the word progress but you talked about moving forward and obviously progress is in motion and it is moving forward and i think we can tend to focus on only the moment today or the moment in the past and especially when we're looking back it impedes us from being able to see the obstacles ahead, not only the obstacles, but also the possibilities. I tend to look at hope at least in two different ways. There's hopelessness that sees things only as they are or as they've been. They may be bleak. They may be lonely. They may be painful and full of suffering. But then there's hopefulness, which sees things as surely as they can be, bright, attractive, worthwhile, achievable. And it really comes down to our choice. What we are going to focus on. Now, granted, there's a lot of baggage that people have and a lot of challenges that they face. And we can all share a story about different types of trauma we face, whether it was in Vietnam, and thank you for your service, or whether it was on a riding lawnmower or anywhere in between. But the question is, what are we going to focus on? Are we going to focus on creating a better future state? And also bonding with others. You'd mentioned several times having mentors in your life. I know that they've probably been essential to some of the decisions you've made and helping to craft that better future state for you. Yeah, yeah, for sure. The mentors that I've had, some were people that I chose and some were people that chose me. And when I look at some of the men that chose me, man, I'm just humbled because of what they accomplished and what they did and in their professional lives and their personal life, and then why in the world would they choose me? So there's a sense of inadequacy. But that sense of inadequacy, because it has to do of looking back. I'm headed over to Old Warson Country Club for lunch. And, you know, I'm a blue-collar guy, and so the food truck, delivery truck, is trying to back in. So I stopped what I was doing, and I guided the ongoing cars away from him to allow him to just back in because I used to drive a truck. So I have this real sympathy for truck drivers trying to park in a very narrow ground. And I was really proud of myself, you know, because I had helped him. And, you know, so Mr. Blue Collar going into Old Warson for lunch, and I enjoyed my lunch with uh, the friends who had invited me. And so I'm walking out. Well, my next meeting after that was with one of my mentors, and so uh, when I got to the meeting, I told her, I said, oh, yeah, well, you know, I just helped this truck back in. And what I'm really mindful is that if it wasn't for the people that helped me, then I would be the guy back in the truck. In she gave me the most unusual answer. She looked at me and she said, well, that's really your problem. And I said, really? She said, yeah. She says, you don't yet believe that you belong at Old Warson. And it made me stop and think about how I saw myself and who I was. And I can be proud of my past. I actually know how to build rafters. I know how to plumb. You know, I can drive a truck. I can drive a trailer. Uh, I have blue-collar roots. I'm proud of those things. But that's really not what my life's been. 
I mean, I've been a white-collar job guy since 84. You know, I've been a leader of organizations since 84. You know, but I have those roots. So it's you look back and you bless your past, but you got to see yourself as you are now. So That's good. Yeah, that's hard. It's hard to do because it's easier to go back and – kind of live and you know because i come from the cajun part of the world and so i just think that you know paps blue liver and beer and second crawdad heads is all there is to life but i actually do enjoy ruth chris's steakhouse i bet you do <laughs> me too i tell you about cajun nates yeah, tell you about <laughs> yeah. <laughs> i'm not cajun but i sure do love it oh yeah yeah well good that just means you have good taste that's right yeah so I want to hang out in this mentor space for just a little while longer before we close, because I think that we don't tap into mentors enough. I know I didn't when I was younger. I did a little bit, but I was a maverick and I wanted to do everything on my own. I was super hard headed. And it wasn't until I made enough mistakes. and I said, you know, I could use a little wisdom, somebody that's already been in the trenches. And then realizing just the immense value of mentorship, someone or a group of people that you can just make a call or just ask a question, say, here's what I'm grappling with, and they will impart life-giving water, if you will, to help you make wise choices. And I've not only found this personally, but people that I've talked with regularly who are accomplished, as well as a lot of all the research I've done, every icon of entrepreneurship has had mentorship at a very foundational level and throughout their career, not just when they got started, but all the way through. And you, as someone who also mentors others, is there a makeup of someone worthy to be mentored? Do you look for certain aspects of behavior or traits or skills? Oh, absolutely. Teachability, you know, and not necessarily lecture receiving, but are they really a learner? When I think about some of the more rewarding experiences that I have, I would say that the people that I've truly mentored, that most of them have far exceeded my professional accomplishments. You know, have far exceeded my professional accomplishments. And then the easiest ones to talk about there would be my two sons. My two sons have both far exceeded their dad and their business accomplishments and their financial standing, all those kind of American dreams. They've just exceeded me. But I think about some of the other folks that I've mentored, you know, when they're teachable and they're not always teachable about everything. So you've got to be patient and you have to put the lesson in a context where they can hear it. And sometimes you have to put it in there over and over and over and over again. As the person who's trying to pour into their life, you have to recognize that what you're saying may not actually matter. It may just be my issue, may not be their issue. But I look for teachability and are they learners, all those kind of aspects there. I prefer humility, but I I like a little bit of arrogance because there's a cockiness that goes with that. You know, sometimes the arrogant aren't quite as willing to give up, you know. Well, Jim Collins talked about a level five leader, and he said that the level five leader is a combination between fierce will and humility. And this work in tandem because they have a very strong will to achieve their desired goals, to reach that vision, that state. But they do it with a sense of deep humility. Yeah. And when we say deep humility, there's a lot of different ways to slice it. But one way to slice it is that you're really out of the equation. And so C.S. Lewis said it like this. The humble person is not thinking about humility. The humble person is not thinking about themselves at all. 
they're not even thinking how could I yeah. be more humble because it's not even they're not even in the equation. Yeah. Yeah, most of my career I didn't have the skills to actually do the job of the people that I led and of the things that I was doing. And I was lucky enough to have a boss who believed enough in me to let me fail and to let me risk stuff. So I have these countless stories about uh, I would go down these tangents and he would just kind of let me go. And then, you know, he would, he would call me in. So I was, I had invented this program and I got it started and on paper, just, it was just absolutely fabulous. I mean, on paper, but pragmatically it didn't work because the whole focus of the program was finding women in rural areas who were single and maybe had a child or was bearing a child and then just upgrade their job skills and get them a better job. And when I did that, I did that down in the boot hill, but I didn't think about is like there are no jobs you know i mean literally they hire at this time in missouri the we are hiring sign ended in cape Girardeau, and everything south they wouldn't even take an application there was just so many applications and that's where our program was located well financially i'm just in the tank you know i'm just like in the tank and i was down about a half million dollars and he called me and he said, hey, I have a board meeting, and I'm looking at our financials, and you're down a half million dollars. And I said, yeah. He said, well, when are you coming back to the office? I said, I'll be there tomorrow. He said, well, good. I'm assuming that you're going to have a plan by the time you come back so I can share it with the board on how we're going to make up this half million dollars. And yes, I mean, I wouldn't say anything but yes. I had no idea what it was. So I invented it in the car as I drove back up here. But I've often thought about how he could have handled that so differently. He literally gave me the freedom to work myself out of that at his own risk to our board at the time. And I thought, if I'm ever a mentor, that's the kind I want to be, you know. Beautiful. It reminds me of another episode with a retired Air Force colonel and fighter pilot who shared about military centralized command, decentralized execution. And I think that fits that same kind of focus is that the execution was decentralized and he was taken out of the equation so that you could execute. Yeah. And you took ownership. And what happened with the half million? Everybody wants to know. We got it. Oh, good. So I left Missouri and moved all the girls to Memphis. You know, there were plenty of jobs in Memphis. Uh, yeah. And then decided that my next big project was I'm going to do stuff to develop jobs in the southeastern part of the, and I have still been involved in economic development down there, you know, because, I mean, there are no jobs, right? you know, this kind of thing. Yeah, just when I look back at my life, I've always had good leaders in my life. They've always given me responsibility of leadership. I, the first leader job I had was when I was 15 years old, and I was in charge of all the guys who put the canned goods on the grocery store shelves. I mean, I was their leader, 15 years old. You know, the next leader job I got was when I joined the Navy. I'm 18 years old, and I'm in charge of five men. You know, I had that role of being a leader, but I always had good leaders around me. I told you the story uh, a long time ago of the new officer we got, and we had to, to uh, shorten the amount of time we could activate radio circuit. And his simple instructions was, is find a way to do this and then tell me what you need. 
And the answer was moving the equipment closer together. So you eliminated steps, which allowed you to actually, if you have big, long arms like I have, I could just stand in one spot and plug everything in. But it reduced the amount of time it took to activate the surf. But the amazing thing is that he didn't try to come up with a solution. And when we came up with a solution, we didn't have the power to enact it. But he did. Yeah, and that's simple. Find a way to solve this problem and tell me what you need. Yeah, yeah. How many times could we say that in an organizational environment that we don't? Well, so I use this organization called uh, Survey of Organizational Excellence. And so they have 170 data points where they measure your staff and give you a profile of your staff against this data gathering of about 50,000 people. So I could compare my staff to 50,000 people. And so we took the five lowest constructs. And so I gave the instructions. So we went down into the staff teams and I let my elite, my C level people pick who was going to be on there. And I said, we're going to set them free to do that. Well, all the C level people were happy. They were going to be set free. But the fact was, is they weren't happy, you know, because I said, you can't attend the meetings. We've given the assignment to them. They couldn't give anyone else a job. They couldn't changed the budget, and they had to solve the problem. That was their total guidelines. And all five groups were successful. The pushback I got was from the C-level people because they weren't involved in the process. They didn't celebrate that we'd solved all these problems. One of the problems was we had a high uh, turnover rate in one of our units of about 35% a year. We take the cost of training and then the disruption of clinical flow. That was really disruptive. And the changes that that group made reduced that down to 14%. Huge. Yeah, yeah, it really was. And I'm not really faulting them because they had never really empowered that staff, yeah. Yeah. you know, but yeah. they didn't celebrate their success. Are we going to continue to do this? What role do we have? And I said, well, your role is to empower them and to encourage them. Uh-huh. You know, that was a huge change in our C-level folks and forced me to actually make some changes. That's what I would wonder that if that was the next step for yeah, you. Yeah, I did. I let one of the C-level people go, you know, and I actually found her a better job on the West Coast and she got a promotion. Look at you. Yeah. Look at you. <laughs> it's good to work for Wayne. <laughs> yeah, the, the good news is Wayne's interested in what you're doing. The bad news yeah. is Wayne's interested in what you're yeah. doing. <laughs> yeah. Indeed. Yeah. Man, I love this. Wayne, we've just scratched the surface, but I just love having conversations with you. Yeah, well, you're, you're such fun a to talk to. So I didn't get to plug your dissertation. So oh. when, when's that going to become a book? <laughs> You know, yeah, exactly. We will find out soon enough. Yeah, yeah, soon enough. We'll, I know you've been encouraging me in that way. Yeah, it's the value of so. When some people think of leadership, they don't they confuse leadership with charisma. And what you did with your dissertation basically shows the work side of leadership. Yeah, 
and the analysis of it. So, yeah. So, yeah, I really do encourage you to put that in book form. And I want the one of the first signed copies. You bet. Yeah, yeah. you're one of the few people that actually have requested a copy and actually started reading it. <laughs> well, I haven't read the whole thing because <laughs> yeah. I want you to know it's yeah. a dissertation and it reads like one. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot of theory in that work. But it's true. You know, we often look at leadership as they, a leader has to be charismatic. And certainly there's some room for charisma, idealization and things like that. But there's a pragmatism and an ideology that also are critical to effective leadership. And so breaking it down and explaining how it all functions to ultimately create and actualize a vision, I think is important. Yeah, Yeah, it really is. It's actually work. It's actually work. Yeah. (laughs) It doesn't just happen. It's actually work. Yeah. Yeah. And it can be very fulfilling work if it's done uh, in the right way with the right people for the right reasons. Yeah. Yeah. So, Brother Wayne, as we close, I'm going to ask you a question. It is not a trick question, but it's an introspective one. One of these days, just like everyone, you'll be at the great summit of life. And your world behind you will have been a series of memories. And, of course, you've got the journey ahead of you into eternity. What's one sentence that you would like the world to remember you by? That I was always a learner. You know, I don't have a glorious academic background. Like, so one of my great non accomplishments in life now, I have a master's degree, but I have never in my life passed an English proficiency exam. I've passed German, I've passed French, I've passed Vietnamese, I've passed Koine Greek, I've passed Hebrew, I've passed Aramaic, but I've never passed an English test. But that doesn't mean I can't be a learner. And so I read intentionally, and I always want to learn. will often ask my children what they're reading so I can read the same books that they're reading to enhance my conversation. But no, I want them to say he was like the worst student on the face of the earth, but gosh, he just was always learning something. So, Wow. Well, you answered that so quickly. Probably the fastest out of any of my guests. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think about my legacy a lot. Yeah. You know, and I'm proud of my family. There are dark elements to my past, but I'm proud of my family. And I see all the things that they did that launched me forward. And uh, I'm one of the few in my family with a college degree, and and that didn't come easy. I mean, I had to convince the president of the university to let me in. He wanted me to go to junior college. And I told him, I don't really see any need for that. You know, you should just let me in, you know, <laughs> and you have the power to do that. And so I was able to convince Dr. Carter to do that. But no, I think about my legacy and, and that's a part of my faith journey, thinking about how I leave this world. You know, will it really be a better place? Will there be people who will say, hey, my life's better because I knew Wayne? You know, well, I tell you what. You've got one right here. Well, thank you. Good to have you, brother. Well, thank you. I'd love to have you again. All right. Just call me. Let's do it. Okay. See you. Well, my friend, we did it again. I'm so glad you joined me on this episode of A Call to Leadership. If you've been with me on the show, listening in, you'll know this. But if you're new, you may not know that I created a free course for you that you don't need to provide an email address. You don't need to go anywhere, but to stay right here in the podcast I created the very first six episodes of the podcast because I wanted you to have the kind of value that you need to take advantage of to thrive as a leader. So if you haven't done that yet, listen to episodes one through six. I'll see you on the next episode. I'm Dr. Nate Sala, and this is A Call 
to leadership.